0: Years and years ago, when we were still children, my sister Cheryl, who was co-hosting this episode, asked me to define what irony meant. And, to the best of my knowledge, I said that irony is what happens when something takes on definitions outside of its stated intended meaning. Now the example I used, because Cheryl even at that point was very fond of terrible film, is saying that you're watching a bad movie in order to laugh about how bad it is. Now, you're still entertained by this film, but you don't like it for the reasons that the filmmakers wanted you to. You are liking it ironically. And she told me that that was a very good example, and that helped her remember the proper definition of irony. And since that was good for my ego, it has retained in my memory ever since. One of the aspects of the show that I wanted to emphasize the most was approaching the subject of each episode upon its own terms and looking at its place in film history and its context within human pop culture at large based on the way it presented itself face first without any kind of pointing and laughing or cheap easy shots. And this is easy to do when it's an objectively important product like uh, Godfather Citizen Kane. However, it's tougher when we're talking about something like Robot Monster, which is the subject for today's episode. I did the best I could. There are thematic things to talk about, but first, my name is Ryan. It's a real deep dive, Robot Monster. Now, joining me for this, as I said before, is my sister Cheryl. Hello, welcome back to the show.
1: Yay, welcome back to my apartment!
0: Despite the fact that you are a connoisseur of terrible film, this is the first time that you have subjected yourself to Robot Monster.
1: Yeah, I honestly had never heard of it before you texted me and asked me if I'd be up for it. And I immediately googled it at work because I'm like, I don't think I'm gonna like a movie called Robot Monster. And then from just the first Google image, I was like, I'm in.
0: I uh, told her about the Wikipedia uh, entry for Worst Movie Ever Made, and it's a rarefied list. There's, like, maybe a dozen films on it, uh, a couple dozen, and Robot Monster's one of them. Like, this isn't your Tom, Dick, and Harry bad movie, only the creme de la crap gets to be on the Wikipedia entry for Worst Movie's Ever Made.
1: Is Plan 9 on there?
0: Of course Plan 9 is on there. Glenn or Glenda is on there. I believe Ed Wood is the only director who shows up more than once.
1: I don't know if I should say good for him or not, but it's good to know.
0: Let's dive into the plot of this thing. First scene is a little boy named Johnny who's having a picnic at the rock quarry.
1: <laughs> <That's> the best <laughs> picnic spot. Everyone, lay down your blankets on these uh, luxurious rocks.
0: <laughs> jagged rocks everywhere. And Johnny stumbles upon two archaeologists who are studying cave paintings in the area. And their idea of archaeology is to find the ancient cave paintings and then just pull them out and bring them <laughs> to museums to study them further.
1: They're literally just chiseling them out of the side of the cave wall. And they're like, we have, this is what we do. We're archaeologists. We steal cave paintings.
0: Johnny runs off, because he's playing Spaceman with his little sister, Carla, but he falls down as a lightning bolt pierces forth, and then we see dinosaurs fighting.
1: One of them is totally, like, what What did I say? It was this an alligator with a fin glued to it, and it looks so happy.
0: Yeah, more on the dinosaurs in a bit. When we wake up, there's a bit of a time skip. You see the monster of this film, the robot monster of this film. Roman, extension XJ-2, that's his full name, has destroyed all life on Earth with a calcinator death ray, except for eight humans who are immune due to an experimental antibiotic serum. They include the professor who developed the serum, who was never named, his wife, his daughters, Alice and Carla, the young boy Johnny, His lab assistant, Roy, the other archaeologist. Yes, he's an archaeologist and a pharmacologist. Let's just roll with it. And then Jason and McCloud, two space pilots who are neither seen nor heard from. Now, when they figure out that the serum is the way to go, uh, they decide that the best way to save the human race is to contact the two pilots who are going to a space platform, which is this toy rocket that's just (laughs) whizzing around. (laughs) However, they need to communicate with the two pilots without getting Roman involved in it. And that means that Alice has to fix their radar device. However, Roy keeps interfering, but in a way that's flirty, or at least is supposed to be.
1: That's what's going
0: on. Yeah, because you you have the intense, intimate close-ups of the soldering iron, and she's just like, don't call me bossy. And he's like, you're beautiful when you're angry, or you're angry when you're beautiful, and that's smooth. Anyways, they don't fix it in time. So that whole sequence of important radio repairs was unnecessary.
1: Yeah, the bubbles interrupt.
0: Yeah, the, the rocket takes off without anyone on board and Roman spots it and destroys it from space and then blows off the space platform, killing all of the Marines that we don't see from because this film can't afford extras. And as Cheryl said before, the communication device that Roman uses to talk to his commanding officer on the planet Roman is a bunch of transistor radios just piled on top of each other with a bubble machine whirling away, throwing bubbles at you from the background, and it's menacing bubbles.
1: There's also a light switch. I, I saw a light switch in the pile.
0: Now, Roman keeps talking to the humans, saying that if they'll expose themselves, he will grant them an honorable death because he really needs to kill all of the humans. Eight surviving means that he's failed. However, upon seeing Alice, he wants to talk to Alice about the possibility of sparing the remaining humans because white bitches do it for him.
1: I mean, she's pretty scandalous. She's wearing the same halter top as her mother. So <laughs>
0: The two patriarchs of the family refuse to let her go out. They're still protective of her, even though charming Roman might be the only way to rescue the human race. Johnny runs off in order to confront Roman personally, and their interaction made us laugh out loud at least once, possibly twice, because Johnny refers to Roman as a pooped out pinwheel, and and Roman's just like, I will kill you now.
1: Best thing ever. (laughs) You're a bully. I will kill you.
0: (laughs) 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 Yeah, it doesn't work, and while they're searching for Johnny, Roy and Alice finally consummate their mutual affection for each other in the bushes.
1: After making a long sequence of weird hand gestures, I guess hand puppets are their foreplay.
0: And also this scene was blanked out. There's no dialogue. They're just miming words at each other while the soundtrack is trying to make you think that there's chemistry between them. Yeah, but
1: it, he's like pointing up to the sun and then making like an okay gesture with his hand.
0: You keep cutting forth to poor roman trying to walk down a hill and not fall down.
1: This is this poor guy. Is in the middle of the desert, wearing a giant gorilla suit, a nylon stocking over his head, and then a weird face bubble helmet on top of that. And they're like, keep walking up and down this mountain. <sighs>
0: Carla also wanders off, and then Roman happens upon her and strangles her off screen, but still that's hardcore.
1: Yeah, that that was the end of Girl Johnny.
0: She has two lines, Cheryl didn't bother to remember that her name is Carla. After returning to the human enclave, Roy and Alice decide that they're going to get married, which leads to a very awkward wedding ceremony. I'm trying to think, like, is there a wedding ceremony where like the bride and the groom are required to kneel?
1: I mean, they had to get on eye level with the doll, so... Yeah, whatever. It was a it was a creepy weird little cult ceremony is what it was.
0: Yeah, on their honeymoon where they're making out in another bush.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's how they met. They gotta retrace the highlights of the courtship.
0: A jealous Roman man happens upon them and then kills Roy by throwing him off a cliff, or he just sort of like grabs him by the neck and then just lets go of him by the edge of like a, a small hill, and then the actor playing Roy is like, All right, I'm supposed to fall down <laughs>
1: And I choose to believe it was Roy.
0: (laughs) It was clearly dubbed in later, at which point Roman grabs Alice, who she kicks her legs a lot and then just sort of gives up.
1: To be fair, this is like the fifth time that Alice has been picked up by a guy in this movie. So like at this point, okay, fine, whatever. I'm not walking. I get it.
0: Yeah, there's a part where they're running away from Roman and then Roy picks her up because it's easier for him to run carrying her rather than expecting both of them to run. It's faster that way.
1: And her dad did it and then Roy did it back at the house. Like this woman got picked up a lot.
0: At this point, Roman's commanding officer, the Great Guidance, seems to think that Roman is sort of losing thread of his mission, that he has been corrupted by this white bitch, and that he needs to kill this white bitch, or else he himself will be destroyed. And Roman has these conflicted emotions. He wants to feel, he wants to think, he wants the individual agency that humans get to express, which he then demonstrates by trying to rip off Alice's halter top,
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I don't even have to say anything at this
0: point. Johnny hatches a scheme to get Alice back by calling up Roman and then offering to sacrifice themselves for that quick death he keeps tempting them with, at which point the two adults would sneak into the cave and free Alice, and then they take out Roman and the prophet. (laughs) Um,
1: I'd like to point out at this point, too, that The dad entirely goes along with it. He literally only cares about one of his children. (laughs) He's like, yeah, sure, let's do that thing. Also, here's a gun. Good
0: job, boy. Anyway, the great guidance comes down and demands that Roman demonstrate his loyalty to the mission by killing Alice right now. And Roman says no. He tells Alice that he's going to go out he's going to kill her little brother. And and please don't hate me because I am trying to feel that that smooth, (laughs) less smooth than Roy. (laughs) At this point, great guidance has had enough and shoots out some lightning bolts with his hands. And that kills Roman. He just lies down and takes a little death nap right next to Johnny, who he just killed. He he kills both the kids.
1: Yeah, he also strangled Johnny.
0: Yeah. Uh, Tired of this shit. Great Guidance decides to use what he refers to as the cosmic June rays to unleash prehistoric monsters on the Earth, which is very clearly stock footage from other films, more on that later. Now, he ups the ante with psychotronic vibrations, which threaten to smash the planet Earth out of the universe. And at this point, Johnny wakes up because it was all a dream.
1: Dun, dun, dun!
0: His sisters, their mother, and the two archaeologists that they met uh, while picnicking in Bronson Canyon express relief at finding him. He's got a little bump on his head as he fell down. Johnny and his family invite the scientists over for dinner, and they happily accept. And after they walk off, The Great Guidance emerges from the cave, waving his arms malevolently, and he's double exposed, so he's kind of ghostly, and he walks towards you at the camera three times.
1: (laughs) Say that again, Ryan.
0: He walks towards you at the camera three times.
1: Say that again, Ryan. No. But if you do it three times, impact.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This movie had to try very hard to be an hour long. (laughs) padded so much all right and that's robot monster okay so production notes for this i did find some information although not too many people were eager to talk about this one so there's not as much of a record of it as other things this had a budget of sixteen thousand dollars and the director was a first-time gentleman. He's 25 years old at the time. His name is Phil Tucker, who also wrote the film.
1: I told you one person had to be behind this.
0: Yeah, if you're watching Robot Monster, it's very clear that nobody involved gives a shit, and Charles is like, at least one person must have cared.
1: Yeah, so he's the one. He's literally just the one person that was like, no, guys, come on. It'll be great.
0: Robot Monster was shot over the course of four days with no sets aside from a few scenes that were shot in a house near Dodger Stadium. The film was made in Bronson Canyon, which is a very frequent site for film and TV production. The shoestring budget did not allow for a proper monster suit for Roman, Tucker hired his friend George Barrows who built the costume himself by hand in order to play the creature. Tucker added a space helmet at the last minute, modeled after the ones worn in Radar Men from the Moon. And as Cheryl mentioned, he wears a nylon sock over his head so you can't see his human face where he's wearing the gorilla suit. And after we finished watching this, you expressed that you didn't think this deserved to be considered one of the worst movies ever made because you've seen plenty of films that are far worse than this one.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, the remake of Child's Play, I got maybe two quarters of the way through, like three quarters of the way through that movie and I had to stop. I saw all of this movie and I was amused the entire time.
0: I think the main reason that this is considered notably bad when contrasted against all other schlocky 1950s science fiction films is because Roman is just outstandingly goofy looking once you see that guy.
1: I mean, I am kind of curious to know what, the head of the costume was supposed to be before they were like, no, 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 nylon sock and space helmet.
0: One person who did talk about the film was Claudia Baird who played Alice. Now, she said that the twist ending, where it turned out it was all a dream, was added at the very last minute by Tucker, like in the middle of their four-day shoot. He's just like, no, this straightforward invasion film doesn't work. I need to I need to screw people's minds and have it be all a dream. However, this does have a lot of parallels to Invaders from Mars, which was released by 20th Century Fox a month earlier than uh, Robot Monster. It has the same type of plot. Kid happens upon alien invasion that wipes out most of the human race, hard straight struggle to survive turns out to be a dream at the end
1: nobody was a fan of the movie
0: possibly or you know it all being a dream is just kind of your go-to hacks Cop screenwriting out. cop-out <laughs> so yeah more than one person thought of it the same year now robot monster was shot in 3d on a camera equipped for dual strip polarized 3d the stereoscopic photography is considered of high quality by the standards of 1953, especially considering that nobody in the crew had any experience with the camera equipment. Over a third of the budget went into this and this alone. In 1984, MTV broadcast Robot Monster in 3D and had a promotional gimmick where they gave away 3D glasses through the mail to anyone who wanted them. That's actually really sweet! It's hard to think of MTV like ever being something that we like, yeah, let's randomly screen Robot Monster one night and turn it into a big to-do.
1: Well, good for Robot Monster. I'm betting that was the only big to-do it's had.
0: All right, getting into the stock footage, a lot of the dinosaur footage is from 1 million years BC, 1940 dinosaur movie. That is all the ones that are clearly stop-motion animated. The Triceratops bits were taken from Lost Continent, which came out in 1951. The toy rockets taking off were used in Rocket Ship XM from 1950 and Flight to Mars in 1951. And the matte painting of the destroyed New York City that Roman taunts the humans with is taken from Captive Women from 1952. In addition to that, the Bubble Machine. <laughs> that was prop behind the radios, was manufactured by the N.A. Fisher Chemical Products, and they are credited at the film for building the Billion Bubble Machine Communication Device, as it is named.
1: It had a name?
0: Yes, it's in the opening credits. Now, the score for this film was composed by Elmer Bernstein. Yes, that one. is done with an eight-piece orchestra, and it's a testament to Bernstein's talent that it still feels like a full film score.
1: Oh yeah, no. It was, it was really good. Like, it definitely uh, it, it helped a little bit with the scene transitions and etc.
0: Yeah, I noted right away that that piano was very jaunty. It seemed to be the only thing in the film that, that sounded happy to be there.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was the middle of the desert in a rock quarry.
0: Parts of it made me think of the score for Planet of the Apes, especially when it gets to those low tones. Bernstein had also scored *Catwoman of the Moon the same year. He had been reduced to working on low-budget schlock due to McCarthyism. He had some left-leaning experiences in his college years and was targeted by HUAC because of it. Not the only person involved in this film to deal with that. More on that in a bit. If you're familiar with Hollywood film scoring and Hollywood history, you know that Bernstein later dug himself out of that hole and he worked on the Magnificent Seven, the Ten Commandments, The Great Escape, which is one of the great film scores. And he choreographs the music for Michael Jackson's Thriller music video. Ooh. Went on to bigger and better things after Robot Monster. The only person involved who did.
1: <laughs> what about Girl Johnny? She didn't have a great <laughs> acting career.
0: Well, let's talk about that when we run down the cast. Okay. First person I want to talk about is Roy, who's played by George Nader. This is his first film role. A couple years later, he was nominated for a Golden Globe, 1955, for Most Promising Male Newcomer of the Year. This was not for his robot monster work. He ended up winning. After that, he mostly worked in bit parts, in secondary movies, and small TV gigs. Next up is Selena Royal as the mother. She had a fairly promising career as a character actress starting in 1941. However, she was branded a communist in 1951 and was called... Senator McCarthy to testify for HUAC. She refused to do so.
1: Good for her.
0: This destroyed her career. She was eventually cleared of any malevolent doings, but it was too late, and robot monster is the last thing she was ever in.
1: Oh, bored for her. Hmm. There's no, like, alternative to good for her.
0: Yeah, there isn't. Sucks to be you. Yeah. But that sounds mocking. And no, Selena Royal isn't great in this, but everyone deserves better than Senator McCarthy.
1: Mm. Bad for her. That's what I'll say.
0: Uh, We have Claudia Barrett as Alice, who I don't think anyone in this film constitutes a talent, but she did the best she could. She worked steadily throughout her career, mostly in TV roles, retired in 1964. Gregory Moffat as Johnny. He was in the middle of a seven-year contract, didn't do much. He did a couple of small bits afterwards, but nothing else. Every single line delivery he gives is awkward, even by, like, 1950s child actor standards.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: And then we get to the most important person, George Barrows, who is Roman and also the great guidance. In case you were wondering if they were separate characters, even though they're wearing the exact same gorilla diving helmet costume and have the same voice. But one of them has a little communication spigot in the front of their helmet and the other one is completely blacked out. That's the difference between the two.
1: That's the difference. I didn't even notice it.
0: Barrow's reused the gorilla suit for numerous other films and TV shows, most notably Gorilla at Large, which was shot several months later. He has the longest IMDb of anyone in Robot Monster, but it's almost always bit parts. When he isn't playing gorilla, he's usually known as guard, dancer, or truck driver number one.
1: (laughs) I mean, if you have your own gorilla suit that you had to make...
0: He got some mileage out of that, and I think he has the most entertaining line delivery. I I would stop short of calling him a good actor, but he's a memorable actor. He seems to be aware of what kind of film he's in, which nobody else seems to. I mean, the scientist father guy is trying to affect this German accent, and it's not quite working out for him.
1: That was German?
0: I think that's what he's doing. He's like, you know who's a smart scientist? Einstein, who has a German accent, so that's what I'm going to do. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I feel weird saying that Barrows is underacting his role because he's wandering around in a gorilla suit in the middle of the fucking desert. But he tries to deliver his lines flatly until he's just bursting with emotions and he's just shattering his arms around until the great guidance strikes him down for rebelling against the Roman Empire. Ah, uh, you get it, you get it, eh, uh, eh? Uh, because he has feelings, damn it. He
1: has feelings because of romance
0: stuff. Oh dear. <laughs>
1: But also, like, I really enjoyed the way he was walking because he just kept lifting his elbows. <laughs> Menacing elbow movements.
0: And whenever he has to go over anything that isn't a flat incline, which is almost everything because it's shot in a canyon, he has to <laughs> he has to thrust his arms out as if he's walking on ice because he's expecting to fall over at any given moment. That man must have fallen on his face so many times during Robot Monster's four-day shooting schedule.
1: Poor guy.
0: The film was released on a double bill with a 3D short film called Stardust in Your Eyes. It made $1 million, which is 62 times its investment.
1: Oh, good for them!
0: Getting back to something that I mentioned in our previous bad movie podcast episode for The Killer Shrews, Robot Monster is what we refer to as a regional film, which is a small trashy genre film produced by a tiny hack studio that was going to play at maybe a couple of theaters and was going to recoup its investment just based on the novelty factor. You know, you look at the poster of this, it's a gorilla with a diving helmet telling you that it's a monster from beyond the moon, and you're like, all right, it's a nickel or whatever movies cost in 1953. I I, I want to find out what this goofy-ass shit is.
1: Hey, it worked for me. You told me the name. I googled it, I saw one picture, and I was like, I'm down.
0: Yeah, if you go through Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever have you, like, 75% of it is garbage like that. We still have our Sharknadoes, hence the kin of Robot Monster. This did not get good reviews.
1: No way! <laughs>
0: As I said, it is frequently argued as one of the worst movies ever made. Uh, Most of the complaints were about how cheap it looked, how boring it was, how awkwardly it was paced, how miserably it was acted. All of these are true.
1: I feel like it's a bit harsh. I don't think that it was boring. I don't, and I don't think it was awkwardly paced. I really enjoyed watching that man in a gorilla suit carefully pick his way down the side of a, a steep incline.
0: And now's the part where we seg into the director's suicide attempt. Oh no! Phil Tucker was stiffed out of royalty payments for the film, and while arguing with the producers over getting paid for the work that he did, he was thrown out of the editing room. The producers wouldn't even allow him to attend the screening for the film without buying a ticket. What the
1: f- Oh my god!
0: Robot Monster's critical drubbing made Tucker unemployable for a time, And he attempted suicide at the Knickerbocker Hotel in L.A. However, beforehand, he sent a suicide note to newspapers. A reporter and detectives got to him before he uh, managed to do it. They found him with a pass in his pocket for the psychiatric board of a veteran's hospital. After some therapy, he was able to get over it. Uh, Later on that very same year, uh, Tucker directed his second film, which starred Lenny Bruce and Honey Harlow. It was called Dance Hall Racket, and it was scripted by Lenny Bruce, and one would think that it would be a bigger deal than it was, but the first time I heard about this film was researching for this, and I am a bit of a comedy nerd, so that was weird. Tucker directed five more films between 1954 and 1960. He was finally able to escape the stigma of robot monster with a distinguished editing career. He worked on dozens of films for the rest of his life, most notably the 1976 remake of King Kong, and he also was an editor on Orca, which is one of the more interesting Jaws knockoffs, which came out in 1977. It is Jaws involving a killer whale.
1: Honestly, I find that a lot more believable because they're smart and mean.
0: Well, the plot of Orca, if you haven't come across it, is these poachers kill an Orca calf and the mother like swears revenge and hunts them down one by one. It is Jaws, except it's a slasher movie starring a killer whale. It's actually a lot of fun. You probably like it.
1: <laughs> With a family theme because she's just like, you know, you killed my son. and so now I got to kill all you camp kids or whatever they were.
0: In 2010, the Zedfest Film Festival inaugurated the Phil Tucker Spirit Award, which was given to support independent filmmakers in horror, suspense, science fiction, art house. That brings me to the legacy of Robot Monster, because it has one. Footage from this film is used in the Cars' 1984 single, you might think. which I'm not a huge Cars fan, even though they're Boston guys, and you know you tend to extend more grace to local heroes, but I think you might think it's a pretty good song. Robot Monster has the interesting hat trick of being featured in both an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000 and the canned Film Festival.
1: I don't know what the Cannes Film
0: Festival is. Uh, It's one of MST3K's predecessors. Oh. Yeah, they weren't the first ones to come up with that concept. Roman has cameos in episodes of *Rocco's Modern Life, and also the film uh, Looney Tunes Back in Action and Megamind. Also, while looking up this episode, at this Comic-Con, a 10-year-old boy was just walking around cosplaying as Roman.
1: That's awesome!
0: I'm of the mind that his parents are nerds that roped him into it, but in this day and age, maybe this kid was on YouTube unsupervised, and the algorithm pointed him towards Robot Monster, and he got obsessed with it. That's possible. That's my headcanon. But yeah, his parents probably put him up to it. Hey, Google it. It's not hard to find, and it's adorable.
1: I'm absolutely doing that as soon as we sign
0: off. Okay, now it's time to get to the themes of this, which, okay, as I discussed on previous episodes involving, you know, say, Forbidden Planet and other ones, just about every 1950s science fiction film has a subtextual nod to nuclear paranoia and the Cold War, and this is no exception. This is a product of its time. Just about everyone in America thought that there was a good chance that they would die in a nuclear holocaust before they grew up. I believe this affected the psyche of the baby boomer generation in ways that we cannot fully quantify. It's kind of like the way climate change affects us, except for them it's instantaneous. So even in its most goofy and shamelessly commercial iteration, we still have... Subplots about the entire human race being exterminated by flashes of lightning.
1: Getting heavy, Ryan.
0: In order to lighten things up, let's talk about McCarthyism and the Red Scare. As I said, a number of people involved in Robot Monster were targeted by Joseph McCarthy. I don't think there are obvious elements of that in Robot Monster itself, but if you're going to have a film about nuclear paranoia, you're also going to have a film about dirty foreigners ending all life on Earth due to our inability to compete with them in terms of arms.
1: And also cold, bitter science that has no room for feelings.
0: That has come up a couple of times in the dialogue. So thanks for clicking on this, expecting (laughs) us to talk about this silly MST3K science fiction film. And then I have to bum you out with my clumsy attempts to to link this to various serious things that we are still working on in our collective psyche. Yay! Yay! Uh, That's everything in my notes. Is there anything about Robot Monster... That we haven't brought up that you would like to talk about.
1: Yeah, you never told me what Girl Johnny did after this movie.
0: (laughs) I couldn't find anything.
1: Ah! That's all I had to say. I besmirched Girl Johnny.
0: Her name is Carla. (laughs) I've just mentioned it.
1: I don't believe anybody called her by that name in the whole movie. I think they just braided and unbraided her hair like eight times. And that's all she was there for.
0: Well, she wanted to play house. And then after she was strangled to death, Johnny was like, I should have played house with her more
1: do you say uh,
0: the scientist no, is no like
1: regrets.
0: Yeah, yeah, the, the the dad scientist is like, we enjoyed her while she was here and now we need to find a way to move on now that she's gone.
1: Literally, he just finished digging her grave like burying her in her grave. He smacked her little grave marker with a shovel and he's like, Doot, doop, moving on. I got two other kids. Yeah, that that was that was the last bit that I wanted to mention was just how brutally cold that man was about his dead daughter.
0: Alright, so if we go on for 20 minutes, we will be longer than Robot Monster itself, so I believe we can sign off here. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. We will see you on our next episode.